Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Megan Gibson, Senior Editor International of the New Statesman in London. I'm Ido Volk, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Sarah Manavis, Senior Writer in London. It's Thursday, the 25th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we discuss the acquittal of a teenager, Kyle Rittenhouse, of charges of homicide after fatally shooting two men at a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020 in the U.S. state of Wisconsin. Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty, my friends. You have a right to defend yourself. Be armed, be dangerous, and be moral. The ruling has been welcomed by right-wing politicians and sparked outrage on the left. We discuss what the verdict tells us about gun laws in the U.S. and how the response to it plays to America's culture wars. Meanwhile, COVID-19 is surging in Europe. Austria is back in lockdown and Germany's health minister, Jens Spahn, has warned that his country faces a bleak winter. Probably by the end of this winter, pretty much everyone in Germany, it has been said somewhat cynically, will have been vaccinated, recovered or died. But it's true. Vaccines were meant to herald a return to normality, but restrictions are returning across the old world. What will the coming months bring in Europe? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Sarah, why don't we start with you? Um, as the resident American here, as Emily Tampkin is away, um, why don't you start by, I guess, explaining the kind of the background um, issues that are at play in the Rittenhouse trial? I feel like Emily and I are like body doubles for each other. Like we never appear on the same podcast. Interchangeable. But like I'm like, yeah, exactly. I've never seen um, you in the same room. <laughs> um, I mean, the Kyle Rittenhouse thing is obviously enormous. It got a lot of attention at the time when it happened, but it's one of these things that really has become like the story in the United States for the last several weeks. Um, and it kind of intersects just a lot of different elements of kind of like the worst of American culture, at least like the most contentious of American culture. And like we said in the intro, the gun law debate, he says that he did it and, you know, got away with doing it using the arguments that it was for self-defense um, when he brought a firearm to a Black Lives Matter protest last year. The trial has gotten a lot of attention for a lot of different reasons. It's pulled up the fact that 
people have argued similar things that are not white teenagers, not white teenage boys in the past and have gone to jail sometimes for life. But also it's brought about this issue in the judicial system at the moment about sort of inherent bias. Like, for example, like the judge was considered to have been a very pro-Trump, at least very conservative judge. He his phone went off, um, which I don't know who is using like custom ringtones anymore, but this guy is. And he had a custom ringtone that went off that was like the Trump theme music. It was this sort of like lightning rod for a lot of different issues. In the United States, racial tensions, gun law debates, um, and also just sort of the state of American judicial justice and whether the justice system actually functions well. And so, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell what all this brought about. And again, he's a teenager, which also added in a lot of sort of emotional elements for people about whether or not teenagers should be doing time for life. When again, he's a white teenager compared to black teenagers who have gone to prison for many, many years for the exact same cases. Just just on that point about uh, about the racial side of this, I've seen a lot of people suggest in the past few days since the ruling was issued that if there was a black teenager with an assault rifle at a protest who was firing at people he would not have made a second shot let alone been acquitted of all charges do, do you think there's there's something to that or, or is this kind of slightly overblown rhetoric that doesn't necessarily reflect how the justice system works no it's absolutely true i mean it's just you have to look at the cases in the u.s of literal unarmed children who have been for example shot and killed by the police. And so I don't I don't think this is overblown. And I think this is obviously, I mean, the fact that he was also at like a Black Lives Matter protest, I think like really does like put this into perspective for a lot of people. But it's also obviously what makes this so contentious. And Kyle Rittenhouse, this is uh, one of the more egregious things Kyle Rittenhouse has done since his acquittal. Um, but he was on Tucker Carlson's show sometime this week. And he actually said, oh, imagine if I hadn't been white. And I, and you know, what if I was a person of color and I didn't have the resources that I have? They might have gone to prison when they were innocent. It's just amazing to see how how much a prosecutor can take advantage of somebody. Like, if they did this to me, imagine what they could have done to a person of color who doesn't maybe have the resources I do or is not widely publicized like my case. Which is obviously an egregious thing to say when that literally happens all the time. I think there is like a sort of knowing element to all of this about the context this is happening in, even for Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, and in that sense, his acquittal, he is now at, like, you know, actively flexing that, which is, you know, chilling. Yeah, I was going to say, Sarah, that something that really struck me from that interview is he said that uh, this case had nothing to do with race. This case has nothing to do with race. Um, it never had anything to do with race. It had to do with the right to self-defense. Right. On the one hand, the people he shot and killed and the person he shot and wounded uh, were white. They were not black. So that that is true. But he showed up to the aftermath of a Black Lives Matters protest. He crossed state lines with a semi-automatic rifle to protect buildings in a city he did not live in. And he ended up getting into a confrontation with several people. He used his weapon. He killed two people. And since then, we've seen an outpouring of support from him from far-right groups, white supremacist groups. And 
it's been politicized across the spectrum. So for him to try and now say this has nothing to do with race, I think is particularly offensive. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's the word. And also, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, a bit about your thoughts on, I guess, just this growing sense of vigilantism within Republican circles in the US. I know gun laws have been very controversial in the US for a very long time. We've seen a lot, a lot of tragedy around that. But it just seems like, particularly in the wake of January 6th, this idea of Republican circles, right-wing circles needing to arm themselves to protect themselves from various, you know, amorphous kind of threats that are never really clearly defined and how that is manifesting itself in these kind of tragedies. It's a really important thing to remember about kind of what we've seen, what is it now, for like the last probably 10 years on the American right. And I guess like what you would describe as like the alt-right, which I know is like not always the most useful um, label to put on it. But you know, that kind of this, this sort of like new conservatism, which is very like individually focused, is that it really has capitalized on something that has existed in like the American psyche literally since the dawn of time. You know, I grew up in a town where it was pretty evenly split, blue and red, in, you know, the Rust Belt proper Ohioan. But like, it's the kind of thing my teachers, if I had a slightly conservative teacher, really harped on when they taught American history is this idea of like, protecting ourselves. This is what made America different in the first place, blah, blah, blah. And of course, conservative rhetoric has obviously played on that for a very long time with patriotism. But when it comes to these like radicalized groups, that's something that I think was a little bit more of a slow burn. And we're really like reaping what was sown over the last 10 years, in terms of that kind of stuff where people are saying, you know what, we've been doing a lot of talk, why don't we do a lot of action? I think it's definitely going to increase. I mean, again, like I said, I feel like my town, like I look at Facebook, because apparently I'm like 45 years old. Um, but <laughs> I like, I there's this particular person I have on Facebook, who I've actually been watching get radicalized slowly over time. And it's been very sad. And she was posting about I mean, she's like an anti-vaxxer now, but she was posting about Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, and my whole town, this happens periodically, my whole town will just, there will be one Facebook post that like the whole town will start commenting on. And you can see the Kyle Rittenhouse argument. It starts with, oh, just the justice system, blah, blah, blah. But you see those kinds of comments underneath. You see people saying, we need to protect ourselves. We are right. You do see January 6th being mentioned in a positive light. You see the people from January 6th being mentioned as similar targets as Kyle Rittenhouse. And so I think it is really important to remember that it's the same package of the political rhetoric that we've been being drip fed and then like slowly not so drip fed and like force fed for the last 10 years. And, and it's and it's the logical conclusion. And, it's, and it ties in again to like what we've already seen this year, but also I think really what we're going to see as a, a, like almost like a new pillar of the Republican Party. There's a really interesting point there, which is that Americans increasingly see guns as a way to keep themselves safe, which means that you just get into this kind of escalating cycle of just more guns. And it it logically ends up with something like a teenager bringing a rifle to a protest and then using it when he gets in a in a confrontation and ending up killing people. Just to very briefly wrap up, it seems to me that the um, response to to the to the verdict and to the trial has been very much split on partisan lines, as you might imagine. Um, Trump obviously 
as, as you might imagine, supporting Rittenhouse quite strongly. Um, Biden saying that he has confidence in a jury system, but also saying that he's quite angry and uh, and confused at the at the verdict. What do you think the kind of response to the verdict tells us about where American politics is at the moment in terms of issues like gun laws and, and self-defense laws? Gun issues in the United States are obviously very, very real and cause very real harm in material terms. But like the sort of discussion of self guns as self-defense has been more theoretical until really the last few years. Um, again, there's lots of exceptions to that, but I mean, the amount that we're seeing now is like definitely different to the amount of like self-defense vigilantism on that scale than we were seeing like five years ago. And so I think it's just that ultimately we're going to see more of this. It's worth remembering in the US that the judicial system is large. I mean, I mean, judges are elected. I vote. I can. I still vote on who my local judges are in Dayton, Ohio, from the UK. Like they are elected officials, and so it's this dual thing of like the politics are ramping up in terms of real harms, while also the judicial system it, it doesn't stay as like a neutral or as sort of like a control for what that is. It also is ramping up alongside it because they are political positions, and so that together obviously leads to results like we saw last week. Definitely. That's one to keep following. And now we're going to turn to Ido in Berlin, where you are at basically the center of a fourth wave of COVID-19. Why don't you tell us a bit about what it's like on the ground there and what's what's happening in, in your part of Europe? Well, it's, it's very relaxing. Um, Germany is uh, wedged between Austria and the Netherlands. Austria has gone into lockdown this week and the Netherlands went to, to a sort of mini lockdown um so i'm i'm very relaxed um no there is a an increasing worry about the spread of covid in europe at the moment there are broadly three categories of countries there are central and eastern european countries which generally have pretty bad vaccine coverage ranging from about 30% in places like bulgaria and romania to maybe about 60% in the baltics so not great at the top end and pretty terrible at the at the lower end. And they're suffering pretty bad death rates that go along with increasing case rates. Then we've got the Southern European countries, which have really good vaccine coverage. So Portugal has nearly 90%, Spain a bit lower. Uh, Italy has a pretty stringent vaccine passport uh, policy, so its coverage is pretty high. And although they're also seeing increasing case rates, uh, the corresponding death rates, they're, they're a lot lower. And then we have the Central European countries, which is where a lot of attention has been uh, this week. That's places like Germany and Austria and the Czech Republic, where vaccine coverage is okay, but not brilliant. And that is enough to for, for a, a surge in case rates, which in a lot of places are the worst they've been for the entire pandemic. So in Germany, uh, case rates are by far the highest they've been since uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And although that hasn't translated into quite the surge of mortality that it would have before the vaccines, nonetheless, it's, it's pretty bad. And um, to go along with that, there's a real kind of sense of anger and fatigue on both ends because we've seen protests in places like the Netherlands, Austria, um, 
Croatia, Brussels and in Belgium against policies like vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination, which Austria is introducing. How big have the protests been in Croatia? Because that's not something I've actually really seen. Is it like similar to the kind of what's going on in other places, essentially? Our colleague Alex Kruger wrote a really good piece uh, on the causes of vaccine hesitancy in southeastern Europe. Vaccine hesitancy tends to be pretty high in countries such as Croatia, in the Balkans and uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, so you would sort of imagine that it's tapping into slightly more widespread sentiment than perhaps anti-vax protests do in places like out of France, for example. What I find really interesting about that is that unlike places like the US, where vaccine skepticism really falls along a certain ideological line, where the right has politicized vaccine use in a way that you haven't really seen happening elsewhere. It, within Europe, vaccine skepticism is much more of a mixed bag. It's not just right-wing people who are anti-vaxxers, basically. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. So, for example, in Austria, um, which has the lowest uh, vaccine coverage of any Western European country, and as a consequence is going into this lockdown, the anti-vax sentiment uh, is obviously very strong because there are a lot of people not taking the vaccine. And it's been seized on by the FPÖ, the, um, the far-right party, and its leader claims to be unvaccinated. When there was a lockdown for about all of four days, a lockdown for the unvaccinated, the FPÖ uh, were taking on the mantle of the defenders of the unvaccinated. But but there is also, yeah, you're completely right, there is also that sort of aspect to anti-vax sentiment, which cuts across uh, ideological lines. You get some of it on the, on the left, um, sort of natural sus- suspicion of medicine is quite strong on the on the left, sort of in those environmentalist milieus in, in places like Germany. But also, I, th- I think one thing that's important to mention when we talk about this is that there also might be an increasingly strong opposition to restrictions and to government measures to control COVID from people who've basically done everything that was asked of them. They obeyed the first lockdowns, then they got vaccinated, and they they feel that the government failed to put in place policies which would increase vaccination enough to prevent the return of restrictions. And therefore, they oppose restrictions because they feel that they've done everything that they were asked and that everything that they was that was needed of them. You're already seeing some of that in places like um, like Germany or, or Austria, where a majority of the population is vaccinated, but leaders are nonetheless talking about the need for further restrictions. And then a sort of adjacent point is that Vaccine passports were announced in places like Italy and France. And the contract announced by the government was that you would coerce vaccination of the minority in order to enable the freedom, ideally of the entire population, but at the very least of the of the vaccinated majority. And so if it turns out that those vaccine passports were not enough to prevent the return of restrictions, which is possible you might end up with quite a lot of anger at at this policy, which ultimately was intended to coerce vaccination and may have caused some anger if people feel that it's the the contract that they signed didn't pan out. I'm interested whether whether Megan or Sarah, you want to jump in on this. There is a certain logic to that. I mean, we're two years, almost two years into this pandemic now. Sarah, you're like me, you're in the UK, which has relatively high vaccinated vaccinated rate among the population but we uh, the government you could you could say has been quite complacent about things like mandatory mask wearing social distancing 
we've had a piece recently on newstatesman.com about um, how <laughs> Boris Johnson's government basically has let uh, COVID rip through schools, and that's really contributing to a lot of the case rises. But I could see there being a lot of anger in in the UK as well if you know there was all of a sudden a lockdown over Christmas again. Yeah. I, I'm actually working on a piece right now, which might, with our data team, like essentially looking at sentiment towards another lockdown and also just like fear of another lockdown and also like kind of the stuff we're talking about, like how many people feel what way about lockdown and why. And what an interesting thing was that like a third of people here would support another lockdown. But I do think that, which, you know, you can unpack that in a lot of different ways, but I definitely think that that's that is how people feel now. Is they got their they got their vaccine, um, and I mean booster rates are actually really good as well. Um, so far, like apparently it's something like ninety. It, it's roughly around like between eighty and ninety percent above the age of fifty um, of people who have been offered a booster who have actually gone to take those. And so, you know, you feel like you're doing your job. A lot of the ICU cases, there was a report out yesterday that most of the ICU cases in the UK are unvaccinated people. And yes, exactly like Megan said, like so many of the cases, when you look at the ONS data, it's schools, like schools is what's driving a lot of it in the UK. And so I do think there is this logical thing where if you've done something right, if you personally would probably be fine, that there's a resistance to wanting to do that just for the sake of the people who, you know, in a lot of cases, it's not that they can't get vaccinated, it's that they choose not to. But like, I do think obviously in England, the rhetoric of, hey, it's a free for all, like no masks, just vibes, like that whole thing, like people are not going to want to go back. Whereas in other parts of the UK, like Scotland and Wales, there is still mask wearing. And so I don't think it would be that hard to say, okay, we're going to limit restaurant numbers so that we're stemming spread before Christmas. Once you have a taste of normal life, and especially if you are vaccinated, I do think there is a logic to, to being like, I don't, I don't want to do that again. Yeah, I think no matter where you are in Europe, um, it's it's it looks like it could be a pretty dark winter. Yeah, and that's the thing as well is like it, a lot of it is because of the lack of restrictions so quickly. I think people get mad at each other, and I think it's worth remembering to blame the people who made the rules. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs. You can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And with that, it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Terrible performance. And we did it in a round. <laughs> uh, this week's question comes from Kieran from Twitter, who asks, did China underestimate the response they'd get to Peng Shui's disappearance? Um, now, Sarah, you wrote uh, an excellent explainer um, for, the, for the NS website on this case. Can you just set out the facts of the case? It's a very scary situation um, and kind of a sinister case. Essentially, this tennis player, Chinese tennis professional player, she was number one in the world for doubles in the mid-2010s. Um, she was the first Chinese player, male or female, to become a world number one. So she is kind of a big face of tennis in China. On Weibo, which is like Twitter in China, she put out a post on the 2nd of November alleging that the former vice premier uh, in China had forced her into sexual relations with him, so accused him of sexual assault. Within 20 minutes of her sharing the post, it disappeared. Um, and then essentially for several weeks, nobody knew what had happened to her. She was not seen in public. She did not post again on any social media platform. And then on the 17th of November, an email claiming to be from her was sent to the Women's Tennis Association chairman, so the WTA that runs sort of all of the, it's the biggest, you know, tennis association in the world, saying in a very stilted and kind of, cold email. It said she was just resting at home, quote, resting at home and everything is fine. The WTA said they do not believe that she truly meant the things that were being attributed to her in the email. Then earlier this week, she did do a video call. And so she was seen physically saying that she was fine. But essentially, the case has gotten a lot of attention. You know, Serena Williams, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, um, Naomi Osaka, all these players have voiced concern about her safety and her whereabouts. And it essentially is just brought up a lot of issues about Chinese government control, in particular with its intersection with sports. And that even if we are technically seeing her and she seems fine and she's saying she's fine, that there is such a bad undercurrent within the Chinese government that there is a lot of doubt cast on whether or not that's actually true and whether or not she's actually being essentially controlled by the Chinese government. It's exactly right. It's exactly that, right? It's this kind of like, it's the limits of the Chinese Communist Party's control over information and media and people in China meeting the outside world's reaction to, to that control. And obviously in China, they can do 
pretty much whatever they want. And we know that if they want to scrub information from essentially from existence within China, it's, you can do that pretty effectively. Um, you know, just try saying uh, June 4th in China. But obviously that doesn't work in the, in the outside world. We don't really know to what extent people in China know that there is a controversy at all about Peng Shui. And it may, it may be that they don't at all. I can't imagine that state media is covering this issue in particular depth, if at all. But of course, that, that model doesn't work applied to the world at large. And when you have a figure of pretty international stature like Peng Shui, people outside of China get wind of it. The sort of usual methods that Chinese government uses on its own people don't work to convince the rest of the world, even if they work within China. Do, do you think that's right, Megan? First of all, and going back to Kieran's question, I do think China has been surprised by the response because, I mean, this isn't the first even high-profile person who has disappeared after openly criticizing the Chinese government. And lots of those are, you know, Chinese figures, whether they're high-profile businessmen, tech leaders, journalists, what have you. And it happens kind of within the context of its own country. But I mean, we even look at the reaction we've seen from the IOC, who had that video call with um, Peng earlier, which Sarah mentioned. And following that call, Thomas Bach, the president, released a statement saying, basically, we're satisfied. She's fine. She told us she's fine. She just wants us to respect her privacy. And that's raised a lot of red flags because a, they saw a video of her, but they didn't see you know, the context of where that video was taking place. It was a 30-minute call. They didn't get into all of the other questions that the past few weeks has raised. Why isn't she answering calls from the WTA? Why is there so little transparency about her allegations? And it's just, I think China basically expected the rest of the world to do what the IOC has done. Now, of course, the IOC surely is thinking 10 weeks from now, the Winter Olympics are in Beijing. So they have a lot of invested and a lot at stake in working with the country. So, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of red flags. After the email that was like allegedly sent from her came through and the WTA said, we don't really believe this is her. They then threatened to pull out like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business out of China. And that started to sort of, and also said like, if if she's not found and if her claims aren't fully investigated. And that sort of started this money snowball where other places started, or like, you know, there was more discussion of, should we do a boycott of the Olympics? Should there be more essentially like quasi financial sanctions until we find out what's actually happened to her? Like it is only since then that she is now actually being physically seen at the very least. And so I think like it is worth acknowledging the fact that they thought an email was going to suffice. And then when people started talking about these other events that are going on, then that's when she started reappearing a bit more. If you present an email without any context on a, say, on a news show, and you you don't really question it, and you don't question the its veracity or the context in which it's taken, and you sort of say, well, we've got this, we've got this email, and like, that's fine. That might work. But of course, it doesn't work when People are free to question it in the outside world, in a you know, in countries which <laughs> do not care about what the Communist Party says or does. And and it seems to me that that's the that's the real question here. It's about the limits of Chinese control outside of China. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in 
at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. That's all the time we have for today. You can read our international team reporting at newstatesman.com. And join us Monday for an interview with John Simpson about Afghanistan and the Taliban. You can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.